Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, everyone from me. Sunshine day. And yes, here in the south of Europe, there is a lot of sunshine, actually. We have some spring days right in the middle of winter. How are you, Natasha? I'm fine, George. Uh, it's true that we have a very nice day today. The sun is shining and uh, you chose a very nice song to start the show with. But we have a very shiny guest as well, don't we? Of course we have, very shiny, so to brighten up, you know, the day and, of course, the show. And not only that, he comes from a very far, far away land, uh, a fascinating uh, country. Um, he's, I think, American. And uh, we're talking about Curtis Kelly, who is uh, right here with us, live from Kyoto, Japan. Curtis, can you hear us? I can hear you, but I'm so jealous. It's cold here. We had snow a couple days ago, <laughs> but it oh was sunny God. today. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! Oh my God! Give us a little bit before we get into the formal introduction. Get, mm -hmm. Give us a little bit of uh, Japan and uh, COVID education. How are you dealing there with uh, the pandemic? Well, it, it's just amazing that you know here I'm an American, and I'm in a country where the number of total deaths since the beginning of the coronavirus has been less than one day in the U.S. So coronavirus has not really been a problem here. There's been a couple spikes and clusters, but Japan has just missed the bullet, so to speak. And I think it's because Japanese are really clean. They don't shake hands or touch or anything like that. They wash their hands all the time. And they're used to wearing masks. We've been doing it from 15 years ago during every flu season. So just doing it now every day is not hard at all. And everybody wears masks. So we're, we're still, I'll keep my fingers crossed, but we're still safe from coronavirus here in Japan, pretty much. Well, that's Absolutely. really positive. That's really nice to be listening to that. But, um, George, before you pose the next question, I would like to ask something. Because whenever I think of Japan, you know, uh, those beautiful cherry trees come to mind. So mm -hmm. uh, when is the season for these cherry trees to, to bloom and blossom? Pretty soon. Not usually now, around... probably, with the snow, right? <laughs> no, but around April 5th or so, around the first week of April, it changes where you live in Japan, but around the first week, of April, first week of April here in Kyoto, they blossom. And that's when we have our opening ceremonies for our universities. So it's always nice to see, you know, the cherry blossoms on campus. Oh, that's, that's such a nice picture. Um, we would like you to send us some pictures of, you know, the universities and the cherry trees and maybe we will upload them on teacher's coffee so you have a positive you know uh um, of the of the countries uh, uh guests come from uh for this podcast so it was it was really nice to have this edition thank you <laughs> okay i will do that you're welcome Excellent. Um, Curtis, you know, I will make it a little bit, um, you know, our friend, common friend, Rachel, who is responsible yeah. for this meeting and connecting us. She always says that the brain loves what is real and personal. So apart that you are yes. real and you are here with us, 
I would like, you know, to give a personal tone. Um, we met for the first time uh, for another webinar uh, just in December, and since then, you know, we are practically talking every day, planning <laughs> things, discussing things, you know, opening new opportunities, because I think there's a lot of fascination and amazement in this connection, and uh, because you are a very enthusiastic person, full of zest, and I was really impressed by, by what you are doing, I would like you to give a brief introduction uh, of yourself to our listeners, because I think you are um, a VIP guy. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, yeah, Rachel introduced this, and even before I'd even talked to you or gotten any emails from you, I went online, looked at what you're doing, and said, this guy's just like me. He's always doing stuff, and he's really active and really positive. So, yeah, so I, I knew right away we'd be good friends even though we've only talked to each other live a couple times, I knew this would be a good connection, and it's really working out, isn't it? Yeah. So Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, I'm about, an American. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us about I'm you. An I'm an American. I live in Japan. I teach in Japanese universities. I've been here for 45 years, so I'm probably more as much Japanese as American. And I would say... I'm really interested in finding fun ways to learn English. And I write kind of unusual textbooks. I published with uh, Cambridge, Macmillan, uh, Pearson, various companies. But I like textbooks that are fun or introspective. For example, I have a series in Cambridge called Writing From Within that has students writing about personal things that change their lives or things like that. And it's related to my mission, my life mission, which is, you ready? Here we go. To reduce the suffering of the classroom. And I came to that mission because I, th I think there was probably three things that really shaped me in my way of thinking, but a really important one was working in universities as students didn't want to study English. Students wouldn't do homework. Students had failed every other entrance exam say this is the only university they could get into. And I saw a lot of students just being really miserable in English classes. So I was trying to find ways to energize them or bring them in or make them feel okay about themselves through little successes or other things. And I think, too, I was really bad at foreign languages myself. I failed Spanish <laughs> in high school. And I studied Japanese in college and didn't get anywhere. And I look around me, and most of the people I know teaching English are people who love English. You know, who take a dictionary, rip out a page, and memorize it. And students aren't like that. They don't have that kind of a, at least not in Japan, they don't have that drive to learn English. So I think teachers like me are more in line with the kind of students we meet in our classes in Japan. And it's true for every EFL situation. Uh, motivation is low if you don't have English as really being important in your country and around you all the time. So that's me. <laughs> but you see, um, Curtis, the situation that you have just described is not only happening in Japan or any other country that motivation uh, or maybe the demand is low as well because 
people usually believe that this is all about reward. I'm going to learn something because I'm going to get something later. It's not about that. And, mm. you know, I really, I really hear you when you describe the situation because this is everywhere. Uh, that's, mm. uh, that's exactly what we get. Students of low motivation, and it's up to us, the educators, I think that the, the foundation here is that we need to realize, reach the realization point that you have just described, and decide that we need to do something about it as teachers, no matter if this mm. is giving mm. lectures, um, do a lot of research, uh, try to energize these kids ourselves, or do something about their motivation. Don't you think, Natasha, as well, wouldn't you agree that this is a global issue? Absolutely, yes, I totally agree with you, George. And I think one of the big problems is teachers think students have to change. But I think what you just said, George, is that is more realistic. The teachers have to change. We have to learn to accept every learner in front of us. And no matter what their behavior is, we have to believe they have some reason for not studying or for not doing their homework that we can't see. We can't just say, oh, they have poor morals or they're lazy or something like that. We have to look deeper and see how many times has this student failed trying to learn English and so has given up? Or how does the student interact with his or her parents you know, they're always being scolded and criticized and told what to do. Then they come to class and they resist, they rebel against that here as well. So there's more that we have to look at. And one of the ideas that really influenced me a lot came from Carl Rogers, of, what, 70 years ago. Something he called absolute positive regard. No matter how terrible or twisted or angry or violent or whatever your student is you're the person you're dealing with is you have to give them absolute positive regard as a human being trying to live a human life well that's really nice what you just said and um to tell you the truth um i i as i was talking with george uh, he told me that you you're an advocate of uh, learning through emotions and that is really amazing because, uh, you know, I, I happen to have a presentation next month on, at, at TESOL Greece based on uh, Colin Trevathan's theory of innate intersubjectivity, where, you know, he, he exactly, he supports the mm. fact that for uh, infants, in order to start communicating, they need emotions and experiences, and somehow they need a very active uh, communication from day one when they are born. That is how language is actually built over the years. Well, these are his latest studies, and he's a, he's a professor in the University of Edinburgh, uh, in child psychology, of course, but that also connects to language development. So well, when I saw this kind, you know, that you advocate, you know, learning through emotions, I said, yes, he's the man that he should be, uh, he, he should explain to us the connection between communication, emotions, experiences, and building up finally and forming our personality as students and people in general. So, Natasha, could you give me the name of that person again, please? Yes, yes. Her... His name is Colin Trevarthen. Colin uh -huh. Trevarthen. He's a yes. child uh, psychology professor in uh, the University of Edinburgh. Okay, yes, excellent. Some of the great ideas and brain sciences are coming out of Edinburgh. we got to be thankful True. for that. But do you mm -hmm. think that um, 
that you know emotions um, are important in the in and how how uh, realistic is to advocate uh, uh, the fact that we have to use emotions and uh, you we have to deliver emotional situations to the students in order to to incorporate them in uh, the educational context do you think that is something that we could easily succeed nowadays well that's that's a great question and um I'm going to reply, first of all, by saying I'm really into brain science. I've been talking about it, speaking on it, reading, writing about it for the last 10 years. So I'm aware of a lot of the research in neuroaffective, you know, what, neuroscience, uh, neuroaffective research that's been going on. And here's something to think about. You can't learn anything unless it has some emotional value to you. This is what Mary Helen Imordino Yang, one of the experts on learning and emotion, said. And that might be kind of confusing because the way that we define emotion in the regular world is not the way that neuroscience does. Let me ask George here. George, if I said emotion, what would you say emotion is? Well, I know that you are reading a lot of John Medina, and there is a phrase stuck on my mind from his from his book that you are also code, uh, coding the brain rules, that this has not been scientifically defined yet, what an emotion exactly is. But I, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not in the field, uh, and I don't pretend to, to know exactly, but I will answer instinctively. Um, I, I see it maybe from um, a pretty, uh, how can I say, it, very basic perspective, that emotion for me is something that really, really attracts my attention, makes my brain work, you know, full throttle, and it's something intense, intensity is the words that come from me, which accordingly and naturally brings on attention and maybe learning. So, yeah, emotion is something strong for me, something that really, really puts me into energy mm. and action. So it's something that makes you feel something. Like a chemical reaction, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And what, but what we're talking about, what we think of as emotion in the real world is feelings like anger, jealousy, hunger, um, envy, all those other things. But in neuroscience, that's not what emotion, that's not how they define emotion. They define emotion as a positive or negative valence or affect that's associated with every single memory and experience that we have. So that I've watched all these movies about arachnophobia and I know spiders are dangerous and I know spiders bite people and I've seen movies and I got bit by a spider once. So the word spider or the image of a spider makes me feel kind of cringy or scared. And the scared that I feel is not the emotion, that's the feeling that the emotion produces. Emotion is this thing in my brain that says, oh, watch it, spiders are dangerous, you got to be careful around spiders, and tells my body to be careful, then later my body gets scared or nervous or wants to stay back. So emotion is this built-in cognition that causes feelings inside of us of fear, anger, hung, you know, those, those different types of things. And emotion is in everything. And we can't learn something unless our brain says, hey, this is important, you should learn this. That's emotion actually acting with learning in that way. You can't learn something that you don't have any emotional connection to. And that's important for teachers to understand. Absolutely, yes. 
whatever we so, connect with emotion, mm -hmm. we either forget because we tend to to put it aside in order to survive. So it's like a reaction to that uh, negative emotion, mm -hmm. or we mm -hmm. remember forever because it's something that actually makes us feel better, makes us progress, and so on. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and. In again, Mary Helen Imordino Yang says, very clear, very easy way to understand emotion. It's the steering mechanism in our life. It's the thing that makes you stay away from that cliff edge. It's the thing that makes you go into uh, your favorite store when you see a fifty percent off sign on the door. It's emotion is the thing that steers us through life, so we know where to go, what to do, what to make important, and um, yeah what to remember. So that's why emotion is so important in education and it has to deal with learning. Our brains are built to remember things that make them feel good and also things make them feel bad but that's a little bit harder that's to manage a lovely in the classroom. Quote. <laughs> that's a lovely quote. Uh, uh, I might use that in my presentation if uh, you're okay with that and I will mention our interview today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, if I may say, because since you are bringing all the theories on the table, this is more or less how Seligman started the positive psychology field. You know, uh -huh. if, if there is a, learn, a learned pessimism, there should be a learned optimism. So, yeah, from the role of the teacher, all, obviously the evil, the negative will be there, but it's our role as a teacher to push these positive emotions all the time, become like... Um, how can I say it, um, transmitters of positivity every single day in our classes. And um, that, that's an, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but let's move to the next uh, topic because I, I, I mentioned in the introduction that you're a very amazing guy and there will be so many things to talk. I know that another passion of yours are stories. And I'm sure mm. that apart from fascinating your students, or maybe helping their episodic memory so to remember things, there might be another perspective that you can add to the fact that I think you're using a lot of stories uh, even while you're teaching, right? Yes. Uh, Why are you do, would you do that? What, what, uh, what's the benefit of this? Well, the first thing to understand is our brains are built to process stories. There are certain things our brains are very good at processing and very good at remembering information from, and two are music, like songs, and stories. So like for music, how did you learn the English alphabet? If you think about it, it's 26 characters in random order, none of them have meaning, but you can remember that order, probably learn it in an hour when you're a child by just learning the song, A, B, C, D. So things that are attached to something that really goes into our memory easily are easily learned. And that's true for stories, too. Our brains are built to process stories because as long as there's been language, that's been the system of education. You know, grandpa, somebody tells the kids, well, if you encounter a bear, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. And the kids that remember that story or got the information were the ones that survived and passed their genes on. And the ones that could process it, well, they're gone somewhere in the dustbin of evolution. So we've known for a long time that information given in stories, we learn it about twice as quickly and remember about twice as long, especially if the story elicits emotions. And stories do that a lot because when we hear a story, it's always a story about us. 
there's always some connection that we have for it. Stories are metaphors for our own lives. E.O. Wilson, the famous uh, biologist, also said, a story is a guidebook for life, you know, for how to live in the world. Stories are manual, you know, stories are manuals for living in the real world. And that's why we watch TV and romance shows and and stories about struggles and things. We're getting ideas about how to deal with life. Well, I'm getting a little bit off the topic. But the research shows we remember stuff, remember information stories much longer and much we learn it much more quickly than information given in lectures or explanations or things like that. So from my perspective, it's a great thing for us teachers to use in the classroom. Tell stories. Have the students feel moved. And by being moved, there's the emotion that causes dopamine release. That sense of reward all comes from dopamine. And dopamine also causes deeper learning. So I tend to end all my classes with a little touching story. And not, not uh, an ancient fable, because the story should have some relevance to today's world, like two friends that had a fight and how they made up or something like that. So, stories are this great tool that we should use more of to teach everything in the classroom. Excellent. Um, I, I think that this, uh, that today's, uh, today's uh, interview is going to be one of the of my favorite ones, George and Curtis, uh, mm. because uh, you know the the topic that we have decided to talk about is really close to what I love studying all these years. But uh, as George um, told me, uh, and you mentioned before, you've been studying the brain, and he said, George told me that specifically you're studying the social brain. So could you explain to me what the <laughs> social brain term is? And how <laughs> can you. this be, you know, how can this help as far as education is concerned? Well, you know, it seems every year I have some new passion that was... Emotion one year, memory another year, dopamine another year, predictive processing one year. But this year, I mean, 2020, I should say, 2020, it's been the social brain. And I didn't really know much about it. You know, I know that we've always known people are social. We all, we've always known that having friends in the class helps students learn better. It makes them feel better about themselves. But I didn't realize how powerful the social brain is. And by the social brain, the people that have made that known to us are psychologists Louis Cozzolino and uh, especially Matt Lieberman. Both of them have uh, talks on YouTube. Just type in social brain and either of those names, Lieberman especially. And they talk about how our social brain is a part of our brain we didn't really realize much about before but it's always active we're always watching other people and trying to figure out what they're thinking whether their outside demeanor matches their internal states we're doing that all the time when we're watching tv and we're watching this prime minister and this president shake hands we're watching do they really like each other is there some kind of animosity there we see it in movies and it's what lets us work together and Here's the thing, Lieberman says, this social brain and this high level of socializing that we can do that other animals can't, 
No other animals can work together in groups with more than maybe 50 at a time. Um, collaborate that way. The social brain that we have is really our superpower. It's the only, it's the thing that really makes us human. But we also have a kryptonite. If you know the Superman stories, of kryptonite course, yes. is this, yeah. Kryptonite is the thing that takes away his power. And the kryptonite is, as he says, education. The reason is because we're always teaching the analytical part of the brain. You know, study this by yourself. Do this. Learn this. There's a test on this. You have to do it by yourself. But whenever we teach that part of the brain, the social brain turns off. But we also know the social brain is very powerful for learning. So having students teach each other, tutor each other, discuss things, is actually activating the social brain to, to help learning. And it, it, it might be even more powerful than the usual style of just teaching the analytical brain. So that's kind of complicated. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. It makes absolute sense, um, Curtis. And this leads me to the next question, because today, in uh, almost 30 minutes, we have talked about positive psychology, about stories, about emotions. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know what? I think this resonates with the reality of modern education. And uh, my next question, which is even, you know, a, a personal opinion in a way, I feel that today's teacher, no matter if they teach English or any other subject, we should be aware of these research, of these theories. And uh, sometimes uh, some of the teachers, they are reluctant to learn or they feel that if they attend a talk or read a lot about, I don't know, uh, what comes now to my mind, for example, project-based learning or task-based learning, that this will automatically um, work like miracles or like a magic wand in a classroom. I think that priority should be these findings, these research, because as you said, Psychology is something that concerns everyone. So if you are not in a position to learn, in a state of learning, if you are reluctant, if you don't want to do things, then the teacher should be the one who should find the solution. And my question will be very simple, maybe even simplistic. Where does the modern teacher, English teacher, stand in front of all these theories? Um, do you find them... Um, how can he cope with all this? Um, would you say something to people who find the, who find them unnecessary or maybe redundant as well? Well, first of all, if we're talking about teaching, we're talking about learning. If we're talking about language teaching, we're talking about language and learning. And both of these are fundamental processes of the brain. So how could we be language teachers, you know, without knowing how the brain works? And I'll say that even if you study brain studies, it won't give you any huge breakthroughs of things we've never done in the past, but it'll tell you things that whether you're, what you're doing, whether it's really useful or not in a lot of cases. But how could we be a teacher without knowing how the brain learns? It's like being a, a glove designer with never having seen a hand or something like that. I think there's some quote like that by Leslie Hart. The mind-brain-ed think tanks. And we're trying to connect brain sciences to language teaching. Emotion, movement in the classroom. Our February issue is on student-to-student -student relationships and how that influences learning. So 
If you're interested in this topic, please subscribe. Can we put the uh, subscription link somewhere on the website or something like that? Curtis, thank you very much. We have mm -hmm. no words to thank you. That has been amazing. It's amazing. Natasha should post, you know, this interview like start today so we can start sharing the recording that it's going to be on mixed cloud for uh, maybe people who missed it and want to or people who want to listen to it again curtis thank you so much you're, um, it was amazing. you're glad yes. to be here thank you it was fun to thank be you. here thank you very much I'm i wish i spoke as well as george again. does <laughs> sorry what i wish i spoke as well as george does <laughs> oh, no, no 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 <laughs> No, I'm not so buying nice. that. Thank you. But you know, we're gonna we're, <laughs> we're gonna talk again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was another um, teacher's coffee about <laughs> to end. Yeah, and um, Natasha, before we say goodbye, let me just remind our listeners that there is another, what we said in the previous um, show this weekend, we have a web panel with Alexandra Zaparuza from ELT Actions. She will answer any possible question regarding CLIL. From what the organizers tell me, there are some seats still left. So, yeah, anyone who wants to register and uh, pre-ask a question is more than welcome. Uh, and um, until next Friday, where we have another surprise. Goodbye from me as well. Uh, have a lovely weekend and stay safe. Bye-bye. Have a lovely weekend. <laughs>